But we want to talk about something else a little closer to home. And this has been something we've been talking about throughout the week. And it has to do kind of with the moving in on the tent city in downtown Vancouver on the downtown east side just a couple of days ago. Talking about mental health and the issue of involuntary admissions when, in fact, somebody doesn't want treatment and is forced into treatment. Can that be a valuable tool? Joining me to talk more about this is Kendra Milne, who is the Executive Director of Health Justice Canada. Kendra, thank you so much for joining us on what is shaping up to be a busy day. Thank you for having me. Before we get into this and talk a bit more about mental health, how we deal with people who are struggling or dealing with mental health, can you tell us a little bit what is health justice and what does what does health justice do? Yeah, absolutely. Health Justice is a relatively new nonprofit in BC, and we um, bring together human rights expertise and the expertise of people with lived experience of involuntary mental health treatment in BC. And we um, use that expertise to do research and advocacy and education around how BC can improve its approach to involuntary mental health treatment. And so where we are now with that, and we were talking about this on the program yesterday as well with the Canadian Mental Health Association. So when we look at involuntary admissions and how many of those are happening in BC, do we know, say, year to year or over the past few years, how many people have fallen under those parameters and been admitted involuntarily? We do. We have data up to 2021 and um, currently in BC. So BC has some of the highest rates of involuntary treatment and hospitalization in Canada. Um, and currently about 17,000 people experience involuntary treatment um, in a year in BC. And some of those folks may experience it more than one time. And that's and- a significant increase. Sorry. No, 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 go ahead. A significant increase so compared to, say, a, a few years ago or, or increase over kind of what period of time? Yeah, so over um, the the last 10 years, um, the increase of 17,000 has gone up from about 11,000. So we're seeing actually people in the hospital voluntarily who choose to be there going down or staying about the same. And we're seeing really, really dramatic increases in the number of people that are experiencing involuntary treatment. And under the BC Mental Health Act, the reasons or the the criteria for somebody being admitted involuntarily, if they pose a harm to themselves, a harm to others, do we know what reasons are kind of, I guess, used the most when we're looking at people who are admitted? Or is there a trend as far as what part of the Mental Health Act is used to admit people? Yeah, we unfortunately don't know that because um, so the ombudsperson in BC uh, did an investigation in 2019 looking at um, sort of whether hospitals that were detaining people are complying with what's required in the act. And one of the things that's required is that the hospital document the reasons for someone to be detained and experience involuntary treatment. Um, and unfortunately, the ombudsperson found kind of widespread non-compliance and that the vast majority of um, files didn't have a- a- adequate reasons. So it's quite difficult to understand why people are being detained involuntarily. Um, But certainly we hear from folks in community um, that it's becoming harder and harder to get voluntary services. And we know that folks are really struggling in the face of um, COVID, which we know impacted folks who had pre-existing mental health issues. 
Uh, we also know that folks are struggling immensely with just the ongoing loss and trauma related to the drug poisoning crisis. And so we hear about folks struggling and we hear that they can't access voluntary services. And so the system is defaulting to using involuntary treatment. Uh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But is that a scenario then where if you're somebody that is looking for voluntary service or voluntary help and there's not a bed or there's not treatment, uh, is that different then in that there is always there always has to be space available for involuntary? Uh, I don't know that there has to be always space available, but certainly we know that, um, you know, hospitals that may be struggling with number of beds, they need to make decisions on priority and who has the highest needs. And one of the one of the thresholds that's used is the idea that if someone doesn't agree to their treatment and needs involuntary treatment, they're more serious is seriously in need of a bed than someone who may voluntarily ask for help. Um, and so we know that that's super problematic because we know folks are, um, you know, may go into an ER or to a hospital saying that they need help and they want help and they're actually um, discharged. Um, and then when they don't want help, perhaps because their health um, gets um, significantly worse, then we um, uh, subject them to involuntary treatment, which can be really, really traumatic and harmful for folks. That seems like a, a bit of a flaw, doesn't it? That people who are coming forward saying, I need help, are the ones that aren't getting it. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's one of the one of the really big and harmful kind of mythologies that are um, seem really prevalent right now in BC is this idea that people experiencing um, mental health issues don't have the capacity or the ability to make decisions or know what's best for them and ask for help. And we know that folks who are in need of housing and are in need of, you know, adequate income or in need of mental health and um, substance use supports are out there asking for it, but face a system that doesn't meet their needs. And then um, this, we kind of respond as a society by assuming that they don't know their needs and assuming that we need to make the decisions for them through the means of involuntary treatment. Right. Are there times, though, when it is necessary or times when it can be beneficial in that we've been talking a lot about this? And one of the reasons we wanted to talk more about it today is uh, there are more and more calls from people who see uh, things that happen on the streets, whether it's attacks, whether it's people who are harming themselves. And it does appear that people are in a state where you're probably not in a position where you're going to say, I, I need to get help, I want to get help. So are there scenarios where involuntary treatment can be beneficial? So we at Health Justice, we don't take a position on whether or not involuntary treatment should exist, and we don't oppose it. And we certainly hear from folks with lived experience of involuntary treatment that have a range of experiences. So some people, you know, may have found a medication or gotten connected to services that really, really helped them, and that was a positive thing for them. Um, and so a lot of our work is on improving the process and making sure that people's dignity and autonomy are protected as much as possible in that process. But I do think there's a whole conversation around the fact that when we respond, uh, you know, with policy or with law or in our communities to when we're seeing people in a lot of distress, it really does them just an immense disservice and harm to only respond to their needs once they're in crisis, when we know what they need to avoid being in crisis in the first place. And so I think it's really hard to know whether or not we could potentially not have involuntary treatment, because in order to do that, we'd need to have, you know, housing and adequate income and adequate voluntary community-based mental health supports in place. Um, but certainly, we think that um, putting those things in place would reduce the need, the need for involuntary treatment for folks. Right. So when we see what happened this week, uh, as far as the tents on East Hastings Street in Vancouver, uh, the moving 
living in, uh, it didn't appear, well, it's not that it didn't appear, there was no solution for people who were living in the tents and were living in that encampment as far as they were told to leave, but there, it wasn't as, as though there was adequate housing or, or solutions offered up to people. Uh, is that kind of what you're, you're getting at, that it's not, uh, there are people there who probably did need medical help but aren't getting it? And there's lots of people there who didn't need to end up living in a tent on Hastings Street, right? Because we could have done things as a community and put in policy and services that would have supported them before they were in that situation. Um, and so we certainly know, you know, there's there's really robust research from around the world around what supports folks' mental health the best. And that is, uh, you know, supporting them to meet their basic needs through housing and income. It is allowing them to live with dignity and feel like they're a part of their community and feel included in their community and allowing them to have some choice and control over their lives. And so we need to put those things in place before we start assuming that people don't know what's best for them. And that gets back to as well, as long as in, in addition to people questioning or asking about involuntary admission, uh, there are recurring calls as well to reopen Riverview, uh, whether it's reopening it like it was before or a different model. Uh, but that's also brought up the fact that when Riverview was closed, it was closed with the idea of being people would be in the community and have the health supports that they needed uh, to, to make sure that they were successful. And we know that didn't happen. D- do you think if we did bring that model back or is that something that needs to be looked at as far as perhaps even trying to, to solve some of these problems? I think there's immensely problematic mythology around Riverview and around what kind of that institutional model can do. Um, and, you know, we know that. So w- there is no shortage of institutionalizing people and subject- subjecting them to involuntary treatment in BC. When Riverview closed, there was only about 800 folks um, um, at Riverview. And, and as I said, there's over 17,000 now in- experiencing involuntary treatment. And so I think that we are very quick to jump to that um, and something like Riverview that will often remove people from our community who we see in distress and comes, sometimes makes us very uncomfortable to see. Um, it, it's an easy solution and uh, I don't think it's an effective solution. I think it's a solution that creates harm. It just removes that harm away from what we can see. Um, and so uh, very much um, our recommendations for solution and what we hear from folks who know what they need to be well is that we need to invest in voluntary mental health and substance use supports that um, you know are coordinated. So if folks do go in the hospital, they're discharged to services and they're connected to folks and, and it's not this kind of piecemeal um, system that is so, so challenging for folks to navigate. Uh, and do you think that would be at least a good first step or what else do you think could we do or as far as what could we change to make it so it is a better system? Some of the things we actually focus on is improving um, the experience and the legal compliance for folks that are um, experiencing involuntary treatment now. So one of the things the person found is widespread non-compliance with the procedural protections that are in place to make sure that when we grant a hospital huge power to detain someone and give them medications and, um, you know, subject them to seclusion rooms and things like that without a person's consent, that there's really clear safeguards around those things. Because one of the things that can do is make the experience that less negative and less harmful for folks who are experiencing it. Because what we hear from folks is that once someone experiences involuntary treatment one time, if that's a really traumatic and negative experience, that will then alienate them from accessing mental health or any health services in the future for fear of experiencing that again. So it actually makes their situation worse because they no longer have safe access to healthcare services. 
So one of the very um, sort of simple and sort of um, urgent solutions that we recommend is reforming the involuntary system right now so that it doesn't traumatize folks and alienate them from services in general. And when you say that uh, the the kind of mythical thinking around Riverview, is there also mythical thinking then around involuntary uh, admissions in, in that how you just described it, that people would think it's this this great thing that's going to help people when in fact it can be harmful? Exactly. And I think things like increased transparency over how it's being used and ensuring that, that there's compliance with the laws and the standards that are set out to make sure that people are getting treated humanely, that they're getting treated with dignity, and that we're working towards a system that starts to offer people that feeling of inclusion and feeling of um, kind of regaining power over their own lives. We need to be moving in that in that place. And right now, BC has a very, very archaic involuntary treatment system, and we have immense work to do in order to get there. Kendra, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.